you ever had a goal that just seemed impossible? If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Notable Peeps Podcast, a series that gives attention to remarkable people who are putting on their shoes, doing their best, and believing in the impossible. All my dreams are coming true. Now, there's been a little intro at the beginning of these episodes talking about Remnus Audio. And some of you might be thinking, what exactly is that? Well, it's a personalized gift that really will be treasured for generations. And let me tell you why. Have you ever had Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas roll around, and you just don't know what to get your parents or anyone else for that matter? Remnus Audio provides the opportunity for you to give a unique personalized gift. So maybe you're getting your siblings together and you're recording memories of your parents and what you admire about them. Or perhaps it's getting your grandparents to share their advice to their posterity. Or maybe it's a gift to yourself to document your love story, your child's birth story, or the obstacles and trials that you've been able to overcome. The thing that I enjoy most about audio is that you get lost in the story. You stop looking at how the person is dressed or what they look like, and you just focus on the words. With video recording, it's hard to forget that the camera is there staring you down, documenting your every move. But with audio, after a few minutes, you forget the microphones are there, and it's just another conversation. To show my appreciation for you listening to this podcast, I want to give you 40% off the entire order. So use the code NOTABLE40, and that code is good for multiple orders until October 1st, 2019. Also, before I forget, we have gift cards as well. So head on over to Remnus Audio, and I hope I get the opportunity to help preserve your memories. Hi, guys. It's Meredith. I wanted to nominate my friend Ashley because I had heard some cool stuff about her, and I knew she worked a lot with refugees and people with from Nepal and I just thought she had a really cool story to share and everybody needs to hear cool stories so go listen to her episode and I hope you enjoy Hey, hey, you're listening to the Notable Peeps Podcast. Hello, my name's Steph, and today I have Ashley Lawson with us. Hey! <laughs> so the fun thing with Ashley is we met a couple of weeks ago at the shrimptacular shrimp fest. <laughs> yes, it was very shrimptacular. Um, and I just was like, oh, I want to be friends with that girl. Yeah. She seems so cool. So we got each other's numbers. Mm-hmm. And then after Meredith's interview, I asked her who she wanted to have mm-hmm. interviewed. And she said, Jeeva. And I was like, oh, I know her. And so yeah. it's fun for me <laughs> since we've like met once, uh-huh. but we don't really know a lot about each other. So it's just going to be fun to like yeah. be able to ask you all the deep questions. Yeah. And it's great because we want to get to know each other better. So I know. It's great. This is like our first hangout it really is <laughs> and it will be documented i know <laughs> i said that we're doc documented well i saw meredith on sunday and i told I her how much i enjoyed listening to that episode and i just said to her i'm so glad i listened to your story i had no idea your dad passed away because my dad passed away too and i and i just had no idea we had that in common oh. and it was just like a really like i just felt so bonded to her when i saw her the next time because mm-hmm. i was like wow like i can go talk like we could talk about that it was just really neat Okay, so since I don't know very much about you, uh-huh. so where did you grow up? What, like, really tell us a little bit about, let, let's start at, like, the climax. Well, I don't know. 
start wherever you find is exciting <laughs> in your life to start. I like to skip through like junior high, high school. I uh-huh. feel like my exciting started in college. But you know, uh-huh. if you peaked okay. in elementary school, let's start there. <laughs> I might have. I, t- I totally have a good starting point. So I actually consider myself having grown up in Connecticut. Ooh, classy. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of unique. I think some people have no idea where it is most of the time, but... They don't know where Connecticut is? No. Well, I don't know. People are like, oh, where is that? (laughs) I'm like, well, it's kind of next to New York. When you grow up there, you think it's huge, (laughs) but it's tiny as far as... You think everyone should know. (laughs) I know. I'm like, this is a really important place. (laughs) It's a really charming area. I wasn't born there, you know. My family lived in California when I was young, and I actually was born in Kentucky, so anyway, lots you have, of like the beach babe thing going on because you're oh, tan really? and blonde. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'll ride summer out as long as I can. Um, but no, I actually, I consider myself having grown up in Connecticut because I lived there from third grade to my senior year in high school. And that was kind of a unique place to grow up. And I would say it's unique because like I said, growing up there, you know, we thought it was normal. I think it is normal still, but um, I think when you leave where you grow up, you realize how different you might be sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm a Westerner now because I live in Utah, but I, you know, New England always feels like home. And so I have to say that's really true. You know, I, I do feel at home here, but I always feel at home when I go back there. So what feels different though? Yeah, I'd say one thing is, you know, and you know, if my faith is a really big part of my life, but just being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints. I grew up in that faith. And, um, you know, I I was a really strong minority, meaning like I was probably like the only, well, I was definitely the only one in my grade. Um, There was one other family in my hometown growing up and it was just kind of sparse. Like it just wasn't really common. I don't know if like my peers knew a lot about, they knew I was LDS or they'd call it Mormon, you know, they knew that, um, but didn't really come up a lot in conversations. Like, I don't think a lot of people knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I did grow up with a lot of Christians and I always felt really connected to them with my friends. Like they would come to church with me. I'd go to church with them. They'd come to girls camp with me and just... I mean, they kind of got familiar with it, and we always felt really united, and I didn't feel that different from my friends, but there was this always this little part of me that was like, I wonder what it'd be like to have an LDS friend. <laughs> I mean, I suppose I had some friends at church, you know, I'd see on Sunday, but I always kind of thought, what would it be like to have a best friend who I'd like, you know, talk about some of these things with, but... um but it's really interesting you said the climax because there was a climax and I actually moved my senior year of high school to Colorado because, um, you know, my dad worked for the, uh, you know, he worked in New York and he commuted, but he was transferred to Boulder, Colorado. And it was like the most devastating news I could get, you know, as a junior going into senior year. But I just, I just knew in my gut, like I just knew it was the right thing. And my parents actually, um, they're like, you know, you can stay here with your friends if you want and have your senior year here. And I just knew like I had to move, which is like super scary. I still look back and I think I can't believe I did that. <laughs> but what's really interesting about it is, um, you know, I moved to Colorado and in a lot of ways, I feel like I grew up in a lot of ways um, that maybe I wouldn't have done had I stayed. I don't know. Um, I still feel so connected to the people and the places that I grew up in Connecticut. But 
Colorado just opened my eyes in so many ways. Um, and I'm, I, you know, like I was telling you earlier, like I, I always wondered what would it be like to have a friend that was in my faith? And, Mm -hmm. um, I really had that in Colorado. You know, I met some of my, even today, like closest friends, um, it was really awesome senior year experience and in the church, you know, in this faith, you know, we go to early morning classes, you know, for before school. And (laughs) I had like, you know, almost like a, we call it seminary, you know, a seminary tutor. And then I went to Colorado and there was this huge class of people in my grade. And it was like, wow, you know, to like pray with people who were of my faith. It was just so unique. It was like, I couldn't have ever dreamed that up, you know, as, you know, even the year, the school year before, you know, and I was just, it was just me, (laughs) you know, in a lot of scenarios, you know, with my friends. So, so anyway, really awesome growing up though, you know, like I had a really good experience. But yeah, going to Colorado, it just really opened my mind, opened my eyes to a lot of things. So what feels different, first of all, the mountains of the West, oh, yeah. <laughs> where I grew up, like in Connecticut, there's, you can't see the sky. <laughs> it's just trees yeah. everywhere. That I think that would be a shock to go to this place where, like you said, there was a whole grade of people that were your same faith. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, looking back, like with my friends in Connecticut, I don't think anyone looked at me and thought, oh, you're so different. But like, I felt different, you know, and it it was something that I didn't really understand even until I was a little older, you know, how I was different. But in the end, like, I don't know what I was like looking for and like finding some like, because I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, like my best friends were just Christian and I love them still to this day. I don't think that makes us that different, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in who we are and how we kind of, you know, cared for each other. I don't think that made us too different. Um, so, but yeah, it was funny. Like when we were, (laughs) when we were flying to Colorado and I was 17, I remember looking at the airport and, being like, mom, it's just dirt. <laughs> like Colorado is just a bunch of dirt, mm-hmm. you know? And I just thought like, I have just moved to this very desolate place. And it's funny because now I really appreciate the beauty of Colorado. But at the time I was really missed all the trees and the forest. And I, I couldn't believe we were living there with all the dirt. <laughs> but anyway. So where did life take you after high school? Um, so I somehow I missed that there was like an LDS church affiliated college in Idaho. I hadn't I actually didn't know about it, but I ended up going to BYU Idaho. They had just switched over from Rick's College to BYU Idaho, which was the four year university. So yeah, so I went to BYU Idaho. I and mean, then you were surrounded by everyone <laughs> of your faith. Yeah. And that's so interesting. It was such an interesting phenomenon. I think a lot of people might go through that going to like a religious affiliated school is like, you know, here I was just, you know, so excited to be around people of my faith. But I I still I then there I was feeling like, oh, maybe I'm different than them, <laughs> you know, in some way that that I don't quite understand. But it was it was amazing. You know, it was an amazing experience, like amazing And I was one of those people who, I mean, I had a social life, but I studied a lot. I remember just taking a lot of time at the library. And I remember on several occasions just staying there until it was ready to close because I was like, I just want to get like everything done. And I probably wasn't as balanced as I could have been, but it was still very rewarding. Well, it sounds like you were balanced in the right areas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like all the areas you should be in college. And so what were you studying there? I studied elementary education and I was like really prideful about it because I had this feeling like, okay, 
if I tell people I'm going to be an elementary school teacher, maybe they won't take me serious or something. So I would always say, I mean, and I, I do take elementary education very seriously, but I just felt like, especially at that school, like there's a lot of people who major in that. Mm-hmm. So I just was like, I just hope everyone knows I'm serious about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would say, I am in teacher education. Like I was so proud about it, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, good for you. You know, like yeah. I'm the one who cared more than yeah. like anyone else. But yeah, I always had thought in my mind, like, okay, I'm going to get my master's. This is kind of a stepping stone or whatnot. And so, yeah, that's what I got my bachelor's in. And it was it was an awesome experience. Like such – I look back on those years. I'm like, oh, it was so awesome. Such good people. So so have you been teaching this whole time? I actually student taught in Clark County, Las Vegas. So I moved to Las Vegas my, you know, my last semester. And I, I student taught there. And then I was hired there um, as a teacher. And so I stayed and that was just an adventure. I actually thought to myself like, oh, I'm going to go like change the world and fix this community that has, you know, that, that needs me and needs, you know, compassionate people. And I really got a wake up call (laughs) in the sense that I learned, you know, that's not something that I can do by myself, but Mm -hmm. I learned like how amazing it is to be on a team that's committed and how much good can happen when groups of people, That was really special, Um, and I learned it wasn't something I was going to accomplish on my own. So that was really neat, and I actually got my master's there. I attended um, Sierra Nevada College, which is actually in Lake – it's at Lake Tahoe, Nevada, but they have an extension campus, and – I was have I was finding that as a general education um, elementary teacher, I was having a lot of special education students come into my class, and um, I was kind of being asked to do a lot of interventions and support. And I was like, I don't know how to help them. You know, I was a little concerned. I always liked a really good challenge, but I felt kind of overwhelmed by the task. So that's when I pursued my master's in educational leadership and special education. So I started my master's and I did that about eight years ago. I knew I wanted to move to Utah. So I taught there for five years. And then, so I just applied for a teaching job out here, but I ended up becoming a specialist. I taught high school in special education for a year and I ended up becoming a specialist for special education for school district here and been doing it for a while now. <laughs> so it's it's been really interesting. I actually taught in the graduate school back in Nevada before I came here. So I, I worked with a lot of projects in the school district, working with professional development and so just really rewarding experiences. So long story, <laughs> yes, I still teach, but I teach more on the adult end now. And I do a lot you of- You teach the teachers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot more of like classroom coaching and then like system implementation of like literacy programs for secondary students with disabilities. So it's it's a really interesting corner of education. It's a, you know, I feel like there's a lot of satisfaction to see- not just students with disabilities succeed, but to see that their teachers succeed and feel like they've made a difference, you know, for groups of people. It's really exciting. That is cool to be that like cheerleader for these teachers because, I mean, I have lots of friends and cousins that are teachers and they often seem very overwhelmed and like there's so much to do and especially with tests and trying to teach everything. And so... Yeah, it can be a very isolating profession. And that's one reason why I'm, I always, I always try to relay and really live that message. You don't, you know, as to teachers, like you don't have to make decisions in isolation. We work as a team and, 
you know, I take on like your goals are my goals and it's, it's a, it turns out to be a really great partnership. Yeah. So that's a little bit about my professional background. Yeah, I had no clue what you did. So I'm like, <laughs> I love this because I have no clue what direction we're going to go. So Meredith had nominated you specifically. She was very impressed by your work with the refugees. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how did you get involved with the refugees? Did you know anything about helping refugees before? Yeah. Well, I had been kind of acquainted with it just with my profession. You know, there when I moved to Utah and I actually had, uh, you know, some refugees in my high school class and learning, you know, kind of just that, you know, Salt Lake is a city that does, you know, have a lot of refugees here. I you know, but I did feel like I was just maybe acquainted with it. But as I was, you know, I was attending a singles ward and everything, I just had this overwhelming experience and feeling that I would, you know, serve a mission, you know, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is really unique because it's not very common that, <laughs> you know, a, a woman in her 30s gets that type of impression. And so um, it was really overwhelming. And I just was like, what do I do now? You know, and on top of that, I was in the middle of the school year and I thought to myself, I'm kind of busy <laughs> with mm -hmm. a lot of stuff right now. Um, but it was two weeks later when I was, um, you know, given the opportunity to serve with this refugee branch from Nepal. And um, I just knew right away, I said, this is it. This this is what I, you know, I had that really strong experience. And I just knew, you know, that this was this was it, you know, and I had been prepared. And um, it was really interesting because originally I had been I had been assigned to work with the scouts, like the Cub Scouts, which were kind of like younger boys who were going through like the Boy Scout, Boy Scouts of America program. Um, but the second I went in and I met the leaders of that Nepali branch, they said, we need you to help work with the young woman. And I was like, are you sure? Because they asked me to serve with the Boy Scouts. Like, no, we need you to work with the young woman. So just stay with that group and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll kind of have a spot for you or something. And I was like, okay. And so that group of, um, that group is to work with, um, Nepali refugee women, young women who are age 12 to 18. And it's, you know, it was working with their, you know, basically twice a week, you know, on most weeks. So we had our Wednesday night activities and then we had our Sunday church days. And these are youth that were born in refugee camps and um, they immigrated over to the United States um, through like a refugee resettlement program. And we're here some of, and, and they have been in the country range probably for about anywhere from one or I should say six months to maybe six years they had been in the program or not the program sorry the country and so they had there was just a really varying range of you know how long they had been here some and they had um you know get, developed testimonies of their them and their families had become actual baptized members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints so there was a lot going on in their lives you know this Lots of transition into the country, transition um, into Christianity, transition into this American culture, transition into the schools. What was your experience with, I mean, did you, did a lot of these refugees speak English? Were you able to communicate with them or? Yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, the first question people ask me when they find out I, I worked with the Nepali group is they're like, do you speak Nepali? I was like, nope. <laughs> I was like, not really. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because I'm like kind of reflecting on it all and 
remember how I said, like, when I went to Las Vegas, I was like, I'm going to go solve and fix everything. And I'm like, oh, wait, I don't do that by myself. Mm-hmm. And that's not really, you know, that's kind of how it was going into this experience. You know, I kind of thought to myself, oh, I have so much <laughs> to give them and they have so much to learn from me. But really, I learned early on, you know, like I get to be this kind of observer on their journeys and I get to kind of be this kind of support. I kind of felt like, you know, the game sideline soccer, you know, where like you, you have people stay on the sideline and then like you're running in on the field and you just, if they pass it to you, you pass it back to them. And I just, I felt like my whole experience was like a sideline soccer game, you know, where I got to, you know, maybe cheer them on, coach them from the side, you know, give them support, give them lots of supporting, but like really they were, they were doing all the work. You know, I was basically sideline soccer, you know, passing them support, help wherever they needed. And it was just like, I got to observe these amazing people have these amazing experiences in their lives and really get to observe just the richness that they have to bring, not only to our country, but to the faith of Christianity, you know, to see their lives and just so many amazing examples to me. Going back to the whole thing is just like, yeah, it's not about me, you know, like at all. It's really about them in the church we don't we don't really ask what we're gonna do we are asked to do stuff and I was asked to be the president of this young woman's organization and that involved leading the, even the adults you know into supporting the the youth and that was really neat so um so yeah I'm trying to think of your original question because I just get talking and then I get do they speak English but no oh <laughs> yeah um yeah so the the youth do you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not what we would call like completely proficient in it, but they're learning it and they're, they're pretty good at reading it. You know, they're, like I said, they're, they're kind of catching up because they didn't, they didn't ever go to elementary school. Most of them, you know, they didn't attend elementary school. Um, they did attend some schooling in Nepal, but it was, you know, they had limited access to kind of the more, you know, it was just like a rote learning. Mm-hmm. When they came here, there's just a lot more application level. And so learning to read, you know, and all of that is something that they were doing in a few years. Like everything that we learn in elementary school, they get to learn in a few short years, you know. So it's really amazing what they're able to accomplish. And they are very accomplished, you know, youth. So it's really incredible to see that they could do. So do you feel like your skills that you learned from teaching and teaching these kids that had special needs like literacy helped in your calling? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was something really exciting that happened with this community while I was serving with them. And that was um, the translation of the Book of Mormon, you know, which is like a fundamental text of the the Latter-day Saint faith. And the Book of Mormon is something that I, I have a really strong testimony of, that book that brings people to Christ, another witness of Jesus Christ. And the book, it took seven years to translate into Nepali. And in June of 2017, it was released in print copy and it had, so it had just been um, translated. You know, it was just a really exciting time for that community. Um, It was really interesting because literacy in actual Nepali is not as common. The youth necessarily couldn't all read it because it was in Nepali and now they're attending school in English, so they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily read it. But we kind of had this really strong renewal you know, let's, let's, let's have conversations around the Book of Mormon, you know, like, what is it? And like, what do we believe about it? And, you know, let's spend time reading it. Let's spend time exploring it, you know, and understanding what this book is. And uh, one of the girls said to me, um, 
she said, you know, Ashley, I just, I want to read the Book of Mormon, but I want to understand it. You know, I just want to understand it. Like, could we just work on understanding it? And I just thought to myself, you know what? <laughs> you know, I work on literacy curriculums every day, all day, <laughs> you know, and I work with teachers and I thought, yes, we can, we can absolutely do it. So I sat down with the Book of Mormon and I just kind of made little literacy lessons. And what's really unique about it is because I, I worked with secondary students that are in high school now and, and junior high, I knew how to make it more appealing to like a secondary student. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of like, would pick a couple chapters and I, I met with the other leaders of the young women's group and we was like, you know, what are some good chapters that we can work with? And, and we did, and we, we did the word study, vocabulary development, and we read and the girls, they said, you know, we understand like that was like their number one thing. And then we talked about, you know, how can you take these skills and do this on your own? And so we started doing some book of Mormon literacy nights and the girls were just really into it. And I was, and it was all initiated by them. They, you know, like I said, like the sideline soccer, like, hey, can you help us with this? And it was mm -hmm. really awesome. And I have to say, one of the really remarkable things that these girls taught me was their ability to ask for help. I'm trying to like put it in a way that's not insulting to any culture because I don't think it's wrong to ask or not ask for help. But I do think sometimes, and I'm going to just speak for myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a hard time asking for help, like if I need something, because I feel like maybe, maybe it's something I learned from my parents, maybe it's from my community growing up, I have no idea. But I have the sense to like do it myself. If I have to ask for help and put a burden on someone else, it's wrong or something, or like I should, I should do all of the problem solving myself. But I just remember early on them saying, like them asking for like something like that, like, I want to understand the book of Mormon. Can you help me with that? And I just was like, absolutely. And I was so glad they asked because I didn't um, know at first and that, that we could even go there, you know, or I mean, I wanted to go there, but I didn't want to, I don't know, they initiated it, you know, they asked. Another thing they asked for was help with school. They were like, we really want to come to our Wednesday night activities, but like we have so much homework and it's overwhelming. It's it, like it literally like something that would take a student who was traditionally English speaking could take an hour to their homework. Well, for these kids, it might take them two or two and a half or three hours because they're working so much through the language and trying to reach for all these resources. So at first they were asking for help on all these projects. And so I was putting in all this extra time, like, okay, let's meet and work on your project and let's work on your science project. Let's work on your, you know, and I just thought to myself, this is too much. So I was really, really lucky to tap into this um, singles community, you know, here in Salt Lake. And we were so lucky to have a one-to-one -one tutoring set up. So we brought the tutors to them, to the Wednesday night activities. We were able to kind of get the word out with um, the singles in the area, you know, those who aren't, you know, married. And it was awesome. We were able to get one-to-one. -one and, I mean, we even had someone come who had their, has their PhD and was able to help with the math and science. And it was incredible because these kids – it was like we wanted them to come participate and have this like community together. And and then we're like, okay, and then stay. And then you get to meet with your tutor. And the kids would always come prepared. And it just – it was just such a – it was just so remarkable to see getting people involved, you know. And just like I, like I said, I love that sensitivity for them to ask for help because that is just really important, you know, that we – I've I've learned like if we need help, let's ask <laughs> because there's people around us who I think are more than happy to help and and it helps everyone when we can all work together. So that was something that helped. But yeah, I do think 
the background of my literacy experience, you know, working with um, diverse students in Las Vegas and working with secondary students, it all felt like it converged, you know, with the Nepali group in, in a really exciting and good way. I felt like I could really, like, let's go max. Like, let's go all the way. Let's get you to where you want to be, you know, and that was really exciting. Well, I'm just impressed. I'm hearing about these teenagers that are, A, wanting to, like, study the Book of Mormon more and learn more about literacy and everything with the Book of Mormon, but B, wanting help with their homework because they want to be better students. That's just cool to see their desire to thrive. Yeah, I absolutely was so inspired. They they have fire lit. And these kids, you know, they were in AP classes, you know, in high school and Nepali refugees. Here they are like shoulder to shoulder with kids that have been, you know, speaking English their whole lives. And here they are. So really impressive. You know, these these youth were also getting some technical training, you know, some medical assisting training. And, you know, it's just it was incredible to see their drive and just how driven they were to 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 be effective, you know. And so that was really, really awesome to observe, you know, them just light, light their fire. And and then I feel like with <laughs> tutoring, like back to that like whole sidelines, like I got to add people on the sideline. You know, it's like, wow, I'm getting a lot of balls checked at me. Yeah. You know, it's like I need some more people to help. And there were people ready to go and it was awesome. It just I just feel really positive about how that all went. So that was good. Well, and I bet for these volunteers that were coming, like the guy with his PhD or different tutors, that it was probably a cool experience for them to take time out from their week and to serve. Yeah. Yeah. They they all expressed that and they would all come back every week. Like they were so diligent and I just was so like it it just meant so much. And I and I yeah, I likewise feel like I mean, the kids were so fun, like in the way that they looked at the world <laughs> and they always told funny stories. So it was a really, I think, like you said, yeah, I do think there was a lot of community building both ways. Um, it was really interesting actually, because I remember, um, right before the tutors came, you know, we had some really candid chats. <laughs> I had some candid chats with the kids and I was let or with the youth and I just said, you know, um, these people, they have jobs, you know, like they're working all day. They have long days and they're coming, like on their own as a service to you to come. And this was probably like eight or o'clock at night or whatever. Yeah, it thing. was. It was like eight to nine o'clock mm-hmm. at night or eight to eight forty five. And I was like, I was like, think about it, you guys. They they have to go and go to work in the morning. And I said, so their time is really valuable. But I said, you know what? Do you think that them coming to serve you is also a blessing for them? And I was like, you know, and I'm like, why? You know, why is this? And we talked about how you know, they can serve, like them having the opportunity to serve is a blessing to them. So I was like, so you guys are both being blessed. That's why we have to, you know, make sure we're prepared for our tutors. And they just, it was so awesome to see them take it serious and like really focus on their tutoring. And, you know, it wasn't perfect in the sense that it was like, okay, it was so clean cut every time, but it was, it was just really sweet. It was inevitable that those really sweet relationships developed, you know, of trust because they're like, oh, we're having tutors this week. And it was like, I always had to tell them like a week or two in advance before if the tutors weren't, wouldn't be there because they were so excited about their tutor coming. (laughs) Which as a kid, I had to go to this tutor for math. I don't like Sylvan learning and I was not excited to go. So it's like (laughs) hearing that they're excited for tutors. Uh It's like, yeah. But something else that was kind of cool about that was um, they were all kind of in the same faith. And so some of the kids, if they were preparing like a talk for sacrament or, you know, they were had questions about, 
you know, different seminary questions. Like, I'm like, you know, talk to your tutor. Let's see what your tutor has to say. And the tutors, like, it, I just remember telling some tutors, like, you know, so-and-so is working on their talk this and I'm like, oh, I'd love to help, you know? And it was just so neat to be able to see that um, support they were able to get from this kind of like almost invisible source. You know, you don't think about these soft skills, you know? So of, you know, just preparing a talk or something in church and how that is something that they need support with, you know, and they're not able to maybe access that at home, you know, so those tutors were really able to step in and, and support. And that was really, it was just incredible to see, you know, that mutual um, service opportunity. So it was really cool. I think the, as I'm hearing about this group, it sounds like the thing that makes them special is that they don't have a sense of entitlement. Like mm -hmm. everything that they're getting, they have to work for. That's right. And it's really, it, that's really interesting you brought that up because I had kind of a shift later. At, you know, remember how I was saying how, like, I think when you hear the word refugee, you know, it really is almost like a deficit label. You know, it's like, and I know it doesn't mean that because no, it actually but, yeah. means something positive, like uh -huh. we're getting refuge. But when you hear refugee, like, and this is what I experienced when like people would learn that I was working with refugee population, they would say, okay, what do they need? Can I get them, you know, clothes, uh, supplies? And it was really interesting because I thought to my, because these people have been in the country for like six, seven years, like we, they've already arrived at, you know, acquiring a job. And we really had gotten past um, with, mo you know, most of the families, like we've gotten past the need for just items. But inevitably, that's where everyone's mind went, which I thought was really interesting. But what I came to learn, and especially working with the the youth and building their leadership and them planning the activities, them planning the lessons and them putting their input into it all, it was like they really wanted service. You know, they wanted to connect with, you know, the temple downtown and they wanted – they wanted to have that. And I just, we really, it, we kind of shifted our language a little and how we, I mean, not the, not that, not we, but I'd say I shifted my perspective a lot because I realized here's a group of people that have worked exponentially hard to be here in so many layers, emotionally, socially, physically, sacrificed their homelands that they still love to be in a place where they could just live and they're choosing all of this. You know, I, I really – and I don't know that refugee and immigrant are mutually exclusive as far as terms go, but I I almost – like I got to a point where I almost didn't even use that word. It was like, you know, because they very much identified as Americans. You know, we are Americans now. We are Nepali Americans, and that is something they're very proud of. And um, so I just – I, I don't know. It's really interesting because yes, like they will always be refugee, but like, no, they, they don't need, we would have lots of people like really sensitive hearted people who would bring items, you know, like they'd have like a family member clean out stuff and they're like, oh, you know, the young woman, I was so thoughtful, you know, they'd come and they'd set it up. And we got to a point where the young women wouldn't, wouldn't actually gravitate toward those types of things anymore. And it wasn't that they didn't like them. It wasn't that they didn't need them. It was that they didn't think of themselves as that anymore. And it wasn't like a sense of, it's exactly what you're saying. They were so far from a sense of entitlement that they almost, it was almost like, I, I, I can choose my own clothes. I can choose what I do. I remember when a lot of them 
were kind of turning over to their to being 16 and they were like Ashley we, we really want to get jobs this summer and just you know be productive and I was like okay so we kind of did an old school method like how I did with my family like I was like all right well why don't we just you know get in the car one Saturday and we'll go drive around to some places nearby that you think you might want to work and we sure enough did that. And I, I waited in the car while they went in and asked for applications. And then we talked about it. And then we talked about the pros and the cons of the different places. And and they did. They went and got jobs. <laughs> and it, I was so proud of them because they they did the talking. You know, they did it all. I literally just provided the transportation. And I just said, this is how you do it. And then we talked about each one in the car. And I just said, you know, you have to really pray. You know, you have to really think about these um, decisions and, you know, make it a matter of prayer and decide, you know, what's going to be a good fit. And, and they, and I really have confidence that they, they learned a ton, you know, doing that. So it was really cool. And to see them, and it's just new, like, it's just like, they knew like, okay, I need to go get a job. Like I, that's what I want to do. And it was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> you know? So that was kind of neat to see them transform. And anyway, so um, those were, I guess some of my experience with just how I talk about them, I think, is and and learning just how they're not deficit at all. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they give so much in who they are and their culture is so rich in love and unity and family. And it's just so inspiring. So in talking about entitlement, were there any other experiences that you were able to see the difference of this group with other people that might have felt a little entitled? Oh, absolutely. I remember one scenario when I was going into the church building um, to have a meeting and the, the branch president was there and I was there and there was actually like a homeless person sleeping outside the church, um, which, you know, I think we all, it kind of evokes an emotion when we all see that because, you know, nobody wants to see somebody um you know, on the street, you know, as, as like living space, you know, and it it's a concern, you know, you, you want to have help for a person who might be deficient, you know, on what they have or, or what they need and what they don't have. And so, um, you know, I don't make it a habit of like maybe going up to people that are homeless, but, you know, try to support where I can. Um, but this, like, we, ab- we actually like have to like step over him to like get in the door, <laughs> you know, so it was like inevitable, we would have to interact, you know, with him. And, so it was really interesting because, um, you know, he had some food there and um, it was really interesting because I was actually with, you know, a, a Nepali refugee there and standing there at the door of the church and he kind of tapped him on the shoulder and he said, and he said, you need to go home, <laughs> you know, and it was really interesting. He's like, you know, why are, why are you here? You need to go home. And the the gentleman looked up and he said, I don't have a home. <laughs> And I just stood there and I thought, this is such an interesting exchange because yeah. here's someone who's homeless and I have no judgment on why or what brought him there to that moment. But then here's someone who was actually forced out of their home from their childhood and forced to be out of their country who literally has no home, you know, or has a new home that's been he's been adopted into America, you know, and I remember watching that and thinking, I I don't even know what to say. You know, I just need to see how this pans out. And he's like, well, I don't, you know, and so the, you know, the homeless man, he just said, you know, I don't have a home. And and I, he's like, well, you need to go, <laughs> you know, you need to go home. And 
And, you know, me being involved in some of the community efforts, I said, you know, are you aware of the road home? You know, there's a there's a home here close by that you can go to and get, you know, get assistance. And there's I know there's a lot of agencies that are there. And I was like, do you know where that is? You know, can I help you find that? And he's like, oh, no, you know, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want that type of help. And he was very adamant that he was not going to accept that. And it was just really fascinating to me to see that. These two separate attitudes of two very similar situated people and how one person was very aggressively against getting help from an agency or support and someone who was very welcoming to it. And just what a difference in those two perspectives, I guess, just right in front of my face and having compassion for both individuals, but seeing that attitude, you know, totally different and, um, so anyway, I just I thought that was a really interesting expression of how I was able to see that that the Nepali refugee community was not at all entitled in any way. Um, just how much gratitude they have for everything they have, and how um, you know they do have they they do feel like they have what they need, and it's it's exciting for them. What an interesting experience! Yeah, it was unreal. Like I never could have expected that. <laughs> never had a, ever dreamed to have experienced that. So you really didn't have experience with the Nepali community before no. you were sent there. So what no. was it like trying to bond with them or did they accept you? Um, well, I remember when I was a kid or when I taught elementary school, I would always tell the kids, we all smile in the same language. So I did a lot of smiling. <laughs> it was really interesting because the first assignment I had was to like give rides to the to the youth and I was like okay yeah we're gonna talk so much about Nepal and what Nepal was like and what it was like being a refugee and we get in the car and like you know I had my first assignment to pick up young youth and it was like oh how was Nepal and it was like crickets they didn't really want to talk about it it was really interesting it was a big shift for me I thought to myself wait a second like maybe they don't want to talk about it right now and that's okay you know Mm -hmm. I had to learn that like they can talk about it in their own time if they want to talk about it. So we started kind of like, well, tell me about school. Like, like what classes are you taking? Do you like them? Like, what are your teachers like? Are they weird? Are they nice? Are they easy? Are they hard? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, let them kind of be in the driver's seat with their lives. And it was really interesting. Um, I remember a turning point with the working with the young woman. We were at our first girls camp together and well, the first girls camp, I was with them. And I noticed that when we were kind of away from formal settings that they would eat with their hands. And I thought it was really interesting. And I think I had seen it in like a movie or something. And I was like, that is so cool. I want to eat with my hands. I was like, you guys, will you show me how to eat with my hands? And they're like, they like looked at me kind of like, you're going to eat with your hands? Like, don't you use forks and stuff? And I'm like, I know, but I want to learn, you know? And so like, okay, you just do this. And they kind of showed me like, put your food, scoop it. And then you like push it with your thumb. And I started to like, and I, and it was like within seconds, like I had all, they were all like circling me and everything. And, and it was just, they just, for some, there was something about eating with them with my hands that just, I think something changed, you know? And it wasn't like, I don't think I did anything that special, but it was like um, one of the Nepali leaders had said to me, she's like, that meant a lot to the girls when you did that because it kind of showed them, you know, that you were into their culture and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, that's such a cool thing, though. Like, who doesn't want to eat with their hands, like rice and stuff? But um, it just kind of felt like a turning point, you know, like, 
why don't I take time to get to know them, you know, and have them teach me about what they like to do and what makes them special and cool, you know? And that was, I like, I really feel like that was a turning point of just like, hey, you're okay. I'm okay. Let's have fun, you know? And it was like, we're equals here. Like, I want to learn about you guys. And so that was kind of a neat experience to have them teach me eating with my hands, <laughs> you but, know? But I, I think that that's why they did feel accepted by you because maybe, you don't know, like if at school before or whatever, when they first came here, different experiences, if people were like, ew, why are you eating with your hands? Or, you know, like, so it might, it, like, I don't know, you just bridging that gap was probably a very, they just felt like they could be themselves. Yeah, hopefully it removes stigma, you know, because I'm like, if you guys want to eat with your hands, do it, you know, because that's you. Do it. Yeah. Like if that's more comfortable. But um that was and it was also really fun to eat with my hands. <laughs> I don't know. I just love stories like this because they really are what this mantra is all about. Going out and working their hardest. Going to AP classes with kids that English isn't their second language. Yeah. And I have to say about the AP classes that's really fascinating is um you know, they're learning about like, so Nepal is a country that did have a caste system, which, you know, is a, is a way that I think originally it was intended to be equitable, but it was a way, it was a really a, this like very unjust ranking system. And it turned out to be, you know, really unkind to people. And, you know, there was a young woman, you know, young woman who was in her AP uh, world history class learning about her caste you know, for the first, like actually learning about her caste system and, and kind of having that go 360 degrees. And she, she's actually, you know, kind of still like, that's still impacting her, you know, that she was in a certain caste and, uh, you know, her learning about that and how empowering that was for her to learn about that. And, and, you know, what an incredible reflect like moment for her to realize and, and having that discussion with the girls, like those, those systems are not those systems don't have weight here. You know, hopefully as much as possible understand that we are all children of God and it doesn't matter where you're born, who you're born, you know, what family you're born into. We are all children of God. And that is, you know, how we treat one another. As I'm listening to you, I'm like, oh, I would love to have you as a leader. Like you just sound, I love the, that like you really gave your all to this time of your life that you had to serve these girls, you know? And it, from what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like it was like a, a burden or whatever, but you were happy to go drive them around on Saturday to find an application or to coordinate with the the tutors. Yeah, I, I really feel like, I mean, honestly, I I think like as far as my heart is just, I felt, like I said early on, I had that experience like you will serve this mission, you know? And I really felt like, it was a mission, you know, and that like from God. And that was just like, that was anchored me in everything. And second of all, I, I reflected a lot on my formative years in Connecticut. You know, we, we lived in an area where there was very few, you know, members of my faith. And there was a lot of people who came together to make it a positive experience for me. You know, I had leaders who would drive, you know, 20 minutes to come pick me up and to drive me to, you know, New Haven, Connecticut, you know, for this dance or something. And, and it just meant so much to me to have access to people of my faith. And I, I reflected on that a lot, you know, thinking about the sacrifices that people 
had done for me and just what a gift it felt like to give that to them. And in a small way, I, like I said, I, I feel like they did, I was an observer on their journeys, you know, for, for a season. And I did feel like, you know, this is how I was shown to love. Like this is how I was shown to serve. And I just feel so fortunate to have had people who did that for me as a youth when I feel like I was kind of this like far distant person out in the woods of Connecticut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I definitely, I love the Young Women's Program and I had so many amazing leaders would take me out for ice cream yeah. just after or just chat or they really cared. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the coolest thing about the Young Women's Program is these leaders that they've just sacrificed for the girls because and it doesn't become a sacrifice because they just love them like when they're you're set apart it's like you really get that mantle yeah. of christ-like love it's a special reward i guess i should say because you just like i said and i i just keep visioning myself on the well i i know i say sideline soccer i'm really thinking sideline field hockey <laughs> Oh. Because that's my only frame of reference yeah. really. I didn't play soccer, but I just think about what a blessing it was, like how exciting it was to see their successes and to see and to hear about their journeys and their experiences. And, you know, it was really interesting. You know, I I feel like so fortunate, you know, that they got that I got to learn their stories and their experiences, their struggles, their successes, and like to see how like how just like with it they are, you know, just mm-hmm. in regular high school life. And, you know, because of the nature of my position and my, um, in my, my job, you know, I, I actually frequented the, their hall, their school hallways, you know, just oh. by nature of my job, I, you know, I put me at their high schools and, um, I'd see them and I would just be like, wow, I am so proud of them. You know, they just work so hard, you know, they get up early they, work so hard and I know the hours they pour into their schoolwork. And so it's it was just amazing to just kind of be a supporter in their journey, really. They just work so dang hard. <laughs> so with the sideline, you had these tutors that would come and help. Were there any other people that you found on the sideline that um, came along with this journey to help with the refugees? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I met all the people I want to be when I grow up <laughs> working <laughs> at the Nepali branch. <laughs> um, just the community of leaders was amazing. They, a lot of them were um, missionary serving with their spouses in the branch, you know, that were retired or, you know, maybe in older years, but so such amazing leaders experience, like their experiences that they were able to share and the mentoring they provided to me was just amazing. And I had really, actually, it was really interesting before I started working with the Nepali branch, I had this really strong desire. Like, I just really want like good role models of like adults. And then I got to go work with all these amazing men and women, which was so inspiring. It was really interesting. One of the people I feel like was absolutely a mentor and teacher to me was Sister Kristen Oaks, who's the wife of the apostle, Dallin H. Oaks, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she had visited the branch, and I had heard her speak, you know, to single people. Her message had moved me so much. I, like, 
I kind of fangirled her down at the church and I was just like, I like looked at her square and I was like, I just want to say thank you for your message. You know, it just means so much to so many people and especially me. And I just want to say thank you. And then I, I was like, oh, by the way, I serve here. <laughs> you know, like I actually am serving here at the Nepali Young Women. And immediately she, you know, she off, she, she said, you know, how can I help? And it was just amazing. She proceeded to really help with the young women. And she brought in the Testimony Glove is like one of the books that she, I know she was instrumental in writing. She also invited the young women to come to their home. And that was just so special. There was just so much love. And the girls loved Love spending time with Sister Oaks and always talked about the love that she had for them and what love we felt in their home. So it was just a really amazing experience for these young women um, and for me, I would say, also to to be involved with such wonderful, loving people. Well, and that's really cool because, I mean, with their schedules, they're traveling around and it's oh, super busy, but she took that time to like personally invite this group to her uh-huh. house. Yeah, it was really sweet. The, um, the first time we went to their home, it was just so sweet. She had prepared just such a sweet setup for the girls. And it was so cute because she's like, do you guys like sweet or salty foods? And they were like, spicy. <laughs> That's one thing. They just love spice. It was really cute. And <laughs> But just her taking the time to talk to each girl and have her talk about her family and her, you know, they just felt so much love. And it's it certainly taught and modeled to me, you know, ministering to one another and, and loving each other. So that was just really a cool, I mean, I don't want to say cool, but it was a really rewarding experience um, to be taught by such individuals, you know, that I look up to so much. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, that, like you said, as you were wanting these examples of these adults that you want to be <laughs> like, it's cool that you had the opportunity to spend time in Apostle's house and to spend time with his wife and, and really see how they raised their family and their values as a family. Yeah. And to help the, I think the young women also, it's really interesting in the Nepali culture, there is the practice of arranged marriage. And a lot of the 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 young women, they, they would say marriage, that's arranged marriage. And then love marriage is when you choose your own partner. And I think they were over time getting more and more converted to the idea of love marriage, you know, where they would choose their partner. And I think, you know, I myself am not married, but, um, you know, they they were opportune to see many um, happy marriages, you know, through love marriage. And I think that was interesting, you know, for them to see. And so one of the current leaders, I'm not currently serving there anymore, but one of the current leaders contacted me and said, they, they, one of the girls had said to her, you know, we know why Ashley is taking her time to get married because marriage is a really big deal. So we know why she's really taking her time to have the right guy or something. And I was like, yes, they get it. So that was really cute. And she, she sent me a note on that. And I was like, oh, that is so funny. I'll forever be the single girl in their minds. <laughs> yeah. But who's waiting for the love marriage? That's right. I choose love marriage. <laughs> not a, but although rearranged marriage, I'm not that mad at, you know? Yeah. No, sometimes I'm like, that seems easier. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things to ask people is about obstacles in their life that they've overcome. Is there a time in your life that you had something that just seemed so hard, so impossible that you were able to overcome? I have a few, but there's one especially that comes to mind. And while we're talking about the Nepali people, I just have to share because I just, 
am so enamored with their culture and the love that they have that just comes so natural. So I lost my father to an aggressive blood cancer um, just over two years ago. And um, he battled it for seven years. And um, so while I was working with the Nepali group, um, you know, he passed away. And I remember, you know, I flew home to Colorado and I was, um, you know, spending some time there with my mom and my family, you know, while we um, were, you know, having the funeral and, you know, just all of those things that go with the passing of a loved one. And um, I just felt so sincerely the concern and the love that the the branch had for me. And when I came home, um, one of the moms of the youth um the young woman that I worked with, she she kind of flagged me. And she's like, I've been thinking a lot about you, you know, that your dad passed away. And she's like, I, I have the scripture that I really want to share with you. And um, now she did read Nepali, but she only had her Bible in Nepali. <laughs> Sorry, I'll say that again. Her Bible in Nepali. And so she opened it up and she said, this is right here. This is the scripture that you need. Like, I need to share this with you. When my dad passed away, this brought me so much comfort. And so we're sitting there and we flag someone down who is bilingual in both languages. And we find out that it's um, Ecclesiastes 7, you know, which is a chapter about death and mourning. And um, we were able to, I was able to read that. And she just said, this brought me so much comfort when my father passed away. And I hope it brings you comfort. And it was it was like balm to my soul. You know, it was a message that I really needed to hear. And I was able to call my family and share the scriptures with them. And I just felt this overwhelming gratitude. Here we have, you know, these people that in my mind I'm supposed to help, right? But they help me. We are peers. Like we are, we are Americans. We are together, you know, and, and just how sensitive she was to, to my feelings and was able to deliver that to me because she did exercise her faith, um, in Nepali and her scripture reading. And I was so grateful for that. It was something that, you know, losing your parent is, it changes your life, you know, and to feel like I had, a friend there in the Nepali branch who understood, you know, and there's lots of people who understand that feeling or, or have gone through the loss of a loved one. And, um, it was just comforting to know, like, you know, we're all ch children of God, you know, and we all are here to take care of and nurture each other. And I just felt like what a blessing that was to me, you know, to go through that. So that was, you know, it's a challenge I'm still going through, really. I don't mm -hmm. think it ever goes away. You know, I watched a TED talk and it was about like, you know, it's okay not to get over it. You know, we, we move forward though, and we're never the same. So I really, that meant a lot to me, you know, to have the support of that community because they were just so sensitive and loving to, to help me through that time. That was especially challenging. Well, and like what you had talked about with Meredith, though, when you heard that she had lost her father's too, it's it's that connection that only you guys understand. I interviewed a, a, several episodes back a man named Martin, and he talked about how it's like a club that no one wants to be a part of, mm -hmm. but then when you are, you, you're just bonded to those other people in the club. One of my very best friends from college and, and beyond, you know, in adulthood, um, she lost her father very recently as well. And she, she summed it up really well. And she said, for the first time, I really experienced what it feels like to feel two almost opposing emotions at once, you know, like, 
And I knew exactly what she meant. I mean, you feel pain like you've never felt before, but there's peace. And that's such a, it can be such a confusing feeling, but it's such a, I mean, I don't even want to, I don't even know if the word comfort is the right word, but that's the best way I could even describe. You know, there's, there's moments when you lose someone you love so dearly where the pain is just palatable, you know, you can feel it, it's in every, but you feel peace knowing that they're not really gone in a way. And it's almost like they're present with you. And that's a really, it's a conflicting feeling because you don't want, you would rather, (laughs) you'd rather sacrifice that pain so you could just be with them. You know, you just want that conversation with them. You want, you know, that comfort of their voice and just to be able to look at them, you know, and to be close to them. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's learning to manage the pain, but accepting the peace that is present as well. And kind of learning to accept both for me and, and knowing that, that they're alive somewhere very close to my heart. And it's, it's very real. That's a unique burden that I had never experienced before that. So that was hard. And it is hard still. <laughs> it doesn't stop being hard. But yeah, so I think that's probably like, probably my biggest like adversity to date, you know? Yeah. So what's your advice to someone that maybe they're struggling with the same thing? They they just lost a loved one or maybe it's been several years, but just like you said, those feelings of two emotions. Yeah. I don't know if I'm very good at advice, but I will say something First and foremost, um, something that I tell my mom a lot is just there's no timeline on grief. I think sometimes in my my own mind, I think to myself, especially when I'm missing my dad, you know, there's like some moments when I really feel it strong. And I think to myself, am I supposed to be like stronger in this moment? Am I supposed to be feeling a certain way? Um, am I supposed to not be crying um, even though it's been some, you know, it's been it's been a year or two, you know, am I not supposed to be feeling it? And I think reminding myself to say, it's okay. You know, it's okay. There's no timeline. Um, there's, and I, and I always, and like I tell, like, like I said, my other very close friend who just lost her father, you know, like there's really no right or wrong way to breathe. And so I saw that a lot in my siblings, you know, my, my siblings, um, you know, we all kind of grieved a little differently. Um, some of us are talkers, some of us are thinker, reflectors in our own heads only. <laughs> and um, that's okay. And it was very apparent to me. So I think just being okay with yourself and and it's okay. Um, you know, I hear stories about people who have very peaceful moments when the loved one passes away. They're like, I was at so much peace and I knew everything would be okay. Like I was not that person, you know, I was, I was wailing, you know, over my father. I I was really sad and it was it was like the most painful experience I had ever encountered. It it was something I could have never imagined until it happened. And so I think it's okay. I think it's okay if we have lots of ugly cry. I think getting caught up in this whole thought of I need to be on some sort of continuum to grieve or I need to be in a certain place by year two, you know, or something that that can get dangerous because, you know, it's, it's not like that for everyone. And we all are on a very different wave. I mean, we all feel it differently and that's, that, that would be my, my, where that would be the most helpful reflection for me right now is to accept it and it's okay 
to feel how you feel. Yeah. And something else I want to add to that too is like I think a lot of people when they find out you go through some traumatic experience, like I think a lot of people want to help and a lot of people are like not sure how. And I've heard like I don't – I mean – Anyone that reaches out or let's say someone that you know that's close to you has lost someone or is dealing with this. And I think that, you know, for me, any indication that a friend or a loved one is thinking of me is like golden. You know, that is – and it doesn't – like it's it's okay if it's not exactly what you think I want to (laughs) hear. You know, like any level of support is just so appreciated. And I think sometimes people – you know, if, especially if you're grieving, you know, and if like maybe someone says something to you that's insensitive or something that, you know, wasn't a really comforting comment, I think recognizing that everyone is like really trying to put forth their best effort to comfort you and support you and that if they knew better, they would do better. But like, and I, th- I and I like, I can't, I can't think of anyone who said something insensitive that I can think about that was like, that hurt me or something. But I do know, like, sometimes people don't know how to reach out. And so they don't. And I think that, um, you know, if you feel like, if you have someone close to you, that's gone through a traumatic event of any degree, you know, just reaching out to say, Hey, thinking of you, or, Hey, I'm here to support you if you need anything is like, just exactly I think what because I I I felt like that too I felt like that where you know someone's lost someone or something traumatic has happened and I don't know how to help but I think just saying I'm here if you need me is perfect that can help ease the pain you know of the burden of loss or, or trauma so what you said if they knew better they would do better I feel like is a golden quote because for most people I feel like that's the case like most people don't go around wanting to offend people and if they do then you probably don't want to be around them yeah very often but I like that like if they knew better they would do better yeah and I know I've totally been the error before and I'm like and then when I find out I might have hurt someone or offended someone it's just like I wish I could do anything to reel it back but I just try to remember I like try to be that forgiving to myself too you know Mm -hmm. like if I knew better I would have done better you know as much as I could and and um yeah, I think just extending that compassion back to others who are trying to be there for you because it can be a very isolating time to grieve. Oh, I bet. So when I first think about a challenge I've had to overcome is I remember, you know, when I was in my like third year of teaching or something and I was finishing up my master's program and there was this, when we completed our master's, we had like a competition for like a monetary prize to implement our thesis document. All along the way, I just thought for some reason, and like so many people in my program just told me like, it's totally going to be you, you know, with your program, your thesis, all the work you put into it. Like, you know, people were telling me left and right, like it was going to be me, including like the, some of the professors. And I, I just kind of anticipated that like my program would be funded and um, at this panel. So I was a finalist in my program and then I presented to panel and I didn't get it. And it was like, I was so shocked. I was just almost like planning on it, you know, in a way, you know, when you like just ex- almost expect something and then it doesn't happen and you're like, what did I do wrong, you know? And I just remember being so frustrated because I remember thinking to myself, like, I thought I had this, you know? Obviously, I was able to find some of the areas of weakness in my, and I was able to kind of fix that. But I remember taking my thesis and just like putting it on the shelf. And I was like, I am not going to touch that. 
because it kind of was a point of pain to like think about that as a failure. And I just thought I failed, you know, like it's, it's something I can't touch. And I literally did not even touch it or think about it for like 10 months. And I remember the day of the panel that I didn't get the award. And I remember the director coming up to me and she's like, Ashley, when you're ready to implement, I will help you. I will, I will walk you through it and we will get this going. Just tell me when you're ready. And I was like, at that moment, I was just like, well, I thought I was ready today. And it was just like, and so I just remember that invitation was always there. So about 10 months later, I just kind of had this inkling, like, reach out to her, like, reach out to her, tell her you're ready. And I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And so I reached out to her and she was like, well, thank you so much for reaching out. I absolutely love to help you, but we're expanding the program. We'd really like you to come be an instructor in our graduate program, in our expansion. And I was just like floored. Wait a second. <laughs> like I thought I was going down a different path, but it actually opened this completely different path for me. And I honestly know I wouldn't, you know, career-wise, for example, like I would not be where I am had I not had I won that that monetary work because being able to teach in the graduate school and being a thesis coach was just the most – it was an experience that stretched me beyond anything I was thought I was capable of at the time. And it just helped me develop in my career in a way that I could have never gotten just on that – my limited vision at the time. So that was a really unique experience that I thought was a big failure, but it turned out there were other plans <laughs> down the road for me. And that was, it was kind of exciting to discover, you know, how something that I saw as a failure could somehow turn into something beneficial. And how it totally changed the path that you are on. And I mean, that didn't come immediately. You had several months sitting there that you probably had some times that you felt sorry for yourself, you know, <laughs> maybe not, but <laughs> yeah, here I was. And I had even like talked to my, you know, school administration saying, I think this is going to get going. I think it's going to be funded. And so let's get planning for it, you know, because I think we got this cool program coming and it didn't come. <laughs> so I had to kind of eat my words a little and that's okay. You know, it, it, it taught me a lot, but it also taught me there's growth in everything. You know, there's growth in what we see as failure and we see it as a failure, but I think our creator sees it as opportunities to grow. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I'm, I just ask for the perspective to see that, <laughs> you know, so that I can accept that. So Ashley, in ending, is there anything that you want to add to close it up? Yeah, I just, I I heard a talk like early from General Conference from, about refugees and it was like early on when I was working with refugees and I just feel so strongly about this quote because I feel like it really sums up my experience working with um, the Nepali refugee population and it's being a refugee may be a defining moment in the lives of those who are refugees, but being a refugee does not define them. Like countless thousands before them, this will be a period, we hope a short period, in their lives. Some of them will go on to be noble laureates, public servants, physicians, scientists, musicians, artists, religious leaders, and contributors in other fields. Indeed, many of them were these things before they lost everything, and this moment does not define them, but our response will help define us. And I, I just... Like I said, I see the world in their futures. I think they have so many amazing things to accomplish. I think 
um, you know, these individuals have overcome so much that we have so much to learn from them. And I hope, I hope they get into these fields where they're public servants and they're able to have and extend compassion on other immigrants and huge contributors to their fields because they do have this 360 degree view of the world, which is really spectacular and, and just refreshing. You know, it's, it's really, really incredible to think about their journeys that they have taken to get here. Well, and hearing you talk has been really cool for me because I have these goals that I want to do. And I've just been thinking like, if I work really hard and if I just like go for it, but like you said, like I'm asking people for help in certain areas and I'm, uh, I'm just trying, you know, like I feel like things work out when we actually go for our goals, you know, like the shoot for the moon. And if you fail, at least you get the stars or whatever. And, and hearing about these, these youth that they were just so excited to learn and to like grow and that they weren't entitled, but they were working for everything. They wanted to go get jobs just has really lit that fire, I guess, with me of being like, yeah, like we all, I, I, I think that that's the cool thing is that and that's why I love this podcast is just hearing all these different stories that sometimes we think we have these limitations, but really there's a lot that we can accomplish in our own little world. Yeah. And I liked what you said about asking for help because like, as you said that, I thought to myself, look for the people on the sideline. Like there's so many people there to help and it's finding the people who to pass the ball to, who can pass it back to us upfield. And I think that is remarkable about communities, about loving and Christianity, you know, working together, you know, in, in one faith, in multiple faiths, like learning about just feeling like we, there's so many people ready to help who are excited for the opportunity to help. Like that's exciting and thrilling to them. I'm going to commit to ask for more help (laughs) 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 moving forward. So I hope I can do that. (laughs) If you read any self-help books, you know, it's like, talk, get a mentor or like talk to someone in the profession that you want to be in or like, you know, build your network. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's like, you're like, well, no, I don't want to bother anyone. I don't want to be a burden. I don't, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the more connected we are, the more empathy we can have for one another, the more compassion and and we always grow, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible. So Yeah, I totally agree. I was just thinking, so I used to work with the elderly and we would do this homecoming dance every year. And it started out like I didn't want to ask for help with volunteers because I was like, oh, people probably don't want to dance. Like it will be awkward. So it was me basically dancing with them and whatever CNAs that were working. Not a very fun party. But then I remember meeting, somehow I met this girl that she was connected with um, Taylorsville, like football and cheerleading team. And she just was like, hey, anytime you need our help, let me know. And so I would contact her and seriously, it would go from this small little party to like 75 people in this ballroom dancing, having a great time. And it was so much fun. And like, I just think about it, like those residents, they don't want to just have a dance with me, you know, like (laughs) we were paying for a live band and everything. Mm -hmm. Like, 
like why was I so hesitant to ask for help mm -hmm. whereas like once I did it just turned into a full-blown party that everyone had a blast mm -hmm. it's something that everyone could benefit from yeah like everyone's gonna love and enjoy so stop yeah. having a party by yourself and <laughs> yeah start inviting people to the dance yeah and eat with your hands, <laughs> with your hands. there you go well thanks so much for all you that are listening and remember to put on your shoes do your best and believe that with God all things are possible Thanks so much for pushing play and listening to this episode. For more information about today's guests or to submit a nomination for a remarkable person that you would like to hear interviewed, head on over to NotablePeeps.com. All my dreams are coming. All my dreams are humming. All my dreams are coming true. If you're loving listening to other people's stories here on this podcast, then maybe it's time to start recording your own. Head on over to reminisaudio.com and take the hard work out of preserving your memories. Mm -hmm.